Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody come back, don't they? Isn't that so? You tried to get into the locked room today, didn't you? How do the dead come back, Mother? What's the secret of the dead come back? The Story of a Disappearance and an Appearance by M. R. James. The letters which I now publish were sent to me recently by a person who knows me to be interested in ghost stories. There is no doubt about their authenticity. The paper on which they're written, the ink, and the whole external aspect put their date beyond the reach of question. The only point which they do not make clear is the identity of the writer. He signs with initials only, and as none of the envelopes of the letters are preserved, the surname of his correspondent, obviously a married brother, is as obscure as his own. No further preliminary explanation is needed, I think. Luckily, the first letter supplies all that could be expected. Letter 1. Great Crishel, December 22nd, 1837. My dear Robert, it is with great regret for the enjoyment I am losing, and for a reason which you will deplore equally with myself, that I write to inform you that I am unable to join your circle for this Christmas, but you will agree with me that it is unavoidable when I say that I have within these few hours received a letter from Mrs. Hunt at B, to the effect that our uncle, Henry, has suddenly and mysteriously disappeared, and begging me to go down there immediately and join the search that is being made for him. Little as I, or you either, I think, have ever seen of uncle, I naturally feel that it is not a request that can be regarded lightly, and accordingly I propose to go to B, by this afternoon's mail, reaching it late in the evening. I shall not go to the rectory, but put up at the king's head, and to which you may address letters. I enclose a small draft which you will please make use of for the benefit of the young people. I shall write you daily, supposing me to be detained more than a single day, what goes on, and you may be sure, should the business be cleared up in time to permit of my coming to the manor after all, I shall present myself. I have but a few minutes at disposal, with cordial greetings to you all and many regrets, believe me, your affectionate bro. W.R. Letter 2. King's Head, December 23rd, 1837. My dear Robert, in the first place there is as yet no news of Uncle H., and I think you may finally dismiss any idea, I won't say hope, that I might after all turn up for Christmas. However, my thoughts will be with you, and you have my best wishes for a really festive day. Mind that none of my nephews or nieces expend any fraction of their guineas or presents on me. Since I got here, I have been blaming myself for not taking this affair of Uncle H. too easily. From what people here say, I gather that there is very little hope that he can still be alive, but whether it is accident or design that carried him off, I can't judge. The facts are these. On Friday the 19th, he went as usual shortly before five o'clock to read evening prayers at the church, and when they were over there, the clerk brought him a message, in response to which he set off to pay a visit to a sick person at an outlying cottage the better part of two miles away. He paid the visit and started on his return journey at about half-past six. This is the last that's known of him. The people here are very much grieved at his loss. He had been here many years, as you know, and though, as you also know, he was not the most genial of men, and had more than a little of the martinet in his composition. He seems to have been active in good works, and unsparing of trouble to himself. Poor Mrs. Hunt, who has been his housekeeper ever since she left Woodley, is quite overcome. It seems like the end of the world to her. 
I'm glad that I didn't entertain the idea of taking quarters at the rectory, and I have declined several kindly offers of hospitality from people in the place, preferring, as I do, to be independent, and finding myself very comfortable here. You will, of course, wish to know what has been done in the way of inquiry and search. First, nothing was to be expected from investigation at the rectory, and to be brief, nothing has transpired. I asked Mrs. Hunt, as others had done before, whether there was either any unfavourable symptom in her master such as might portend a sudden stroke or attack of illness, or whether he had ever had reason to apprehend any such thing. But both she and also his medical man were clear that this was not the case. He was quite in his usual health. In the second place, naturally, ponds and streams have been dragged, and fields in the neighbourhood which he is known to have visited last have been searched without result. I have myself talked to the parish clerk, and, more important, have been to the house where he paid his visit. There can be no question of any foul play on these people's part. The one man in the house is ill in bed and very weak, and the wife and the children, of course, could do nothing themselves, nor is there the shadow of probability that they or any of them should have agreed to decoy poor Uncle H out in order that he might be attacked on the way back. They had told what they knew to several other inquirers already, but the woman repeated it to me. The rector was looking just as usual. He wasn't very long with the sick man. He ain't, she said, like some what has a gift in prayer, but there, if it was all that way, however would the chapel people get their living? He left some money when he went away, and one of the children saw him cross the stile into the next field. He was dressed as he always was, all his bands. I gather he's nearly the last man remaining who does so, at any rate in this district. You see, I'm putting down everything. The fact is that I have nothing else to do, having brought no business papers with me. And moreover, it serves to clear my own mind and may suggest points which may have been overlooked. So, I shall continue to write all that passes, even to conversations if need be. You may read or not, as you please, but pray keep the letters. I have another reason for writing so fully, but it's not a very tangible one. You may ask if I have myself made any search in the fields near the cottage. Something, a good deal, has been done by others, as I mentioned, but I hope to go over the ground tomorrow. Bow Street has now been informed and will send down by tonight's coach, but I do not think they will make much of the job. There's no snow, which might have helped us. The fields are all grass. Of course, it was on the qui-vive for any indication today, both going and returning, but there was a thick mist on the way back, and I was not in trim for wandering about unknown pastures, especially on an evening when bushes looked like men, and a cow lowing in the distance might have been the last trump. I assure you, if Uncle Henry had stepped out from among the trees in the little copse which borders the path at one place, carrying his head under his arm, I should have been very little more uncomfortable than I was. To tell you the truth, I was rather expecting something of the kind. But I must drop my pen for the moment. Mr. Lucas, the curate, is announced. Later. Mr. Lucas has been and gone, and there isn't much beyond the decencies of ordinary sentiment to be got from him. I can see that he has given up any idea that the rector can be alive, and that, so far as he can be, he's truly sorry. I can also discern that even in a more emotional person than Mr. Lucas, Uncle Henry was not likely to inspire strong attachment. Besides Mr. Lucas, I have had another visitor in the shape of my Boniface, mine host of the King's Head, who came to see whether I had everything I wished, and who really requires the pen of a boz to do him justice. He was very solemn and weighty at first. Well, sir, he said, I suppose we must bow our head beneath the blow, as my poor wife had used to say. So far as I can gather, there's been neither hide nor hair of our late respected incumbent scented out as yet. Not that he was what the scripture terms a hairy man in any sense of the word. I said as well as I could, that I suppose not, 
but could not help adding that I had heard he was sometimes a little difficult to deal with. Mr. Bowman looked at me sharply for a moment and then passed in a flash from solemn sympathy to impassioned declamation. When I think, he said, of the language that man see fit to employ to me in this here parlour, I know more than a matter of a cask of beer. Such a thing as I told him might happen any day of the week to a man with a family, though, as it turned out, he was quite under a mistake, and that I knew at the time, only I was shocked to hear him. I couldn't lay my tongue to the right expression. He stopped abruptly and eyed me with some embarrassment. I only said, Dear me, I'm sorry to hear you had any little differences. I suppose my uncle will be a good deal missed in the parish. Mr. Bowman drew a long breath. Ah, yes, he said, your uncle. You'll understand me when I say that for the moment it had slipped my remembrance that it was a relative, and natural enough I must say, as it should, for as to you bearing any resemblance to him, the notion of any such thing is clean ridiculous. All the same, had I have bore it to my mind, you be among the first to feel, I'm sure, as I should have abstained my lips, or rather I should not have abstained my lips with no such reflections. I assured him that I quite understood, and was going to have asked him some further questions, but he was called away to see after some business. By the way, you needn't take it into your head that he has anything to fear from the inquiry into poor Uncle Henry's disappearance, though no doubt in the watches of the night it will occur to him that I think he has, and I may expect some explanation tomorrow. I must close this letter, as it has to go by the late coach. Letter number three, December the 25th, 1837. My dear Robert, this is a curious letter to be writing on Christmas Day, and yet, after all, there's nothing much in it, or there may be. You shall be the judge, at least, nothing decisive. The Bow Street men practically say that they have no clue. The length of time and the weather conditions have made all the tracks so faint as to be quite useless. Nothing that belonged to the dead man, I'm afraid no other word will do, has been picked up. As I expected, Mr. Bowman was uneasy in his mind this morning. Quite early, I heard him holding forth in a very distant voice, purposely so, I thought, to the Bow Street officers in the bar, as to the loss that the town had sustained in their rector, and as to the necessity of leaving no stone unturned, he was very great on this phrase, in order to come at the truth. I suspect him of being an orator of repute at convivial meetings. When I was at breakfast, he came to wait on me and took an opportunity when handing a muffin to say in a low tone, I hope, sir, that you recognise as my feelings towards your relative is not actuated by any taint of what you might call malignity. You can leave the room, Eliza. I'll see to this gentleman as all he has requires with my own hands. I ask your pardon, sir, but you must be well aware a man is not always master of himself. And when that man has been hurt in his mind by the applications of expressions which I will go so far as to say had not ought to have been made use of. His voice was rising all this time, and his face growing redder. No, sir, and here, if you will permit of it, I should like to explain to you in a very few words the exact state of the bone of contention. This cask, I might call it more truly a firkin of beer. I felt it was time to interpose, and said that I did not see that it would help us very much to go into that matter in detail. Mr. Bowman acquiesced and resumed more calmly. Well, sir, I bow to your ruling, and as you say, be that here or be it there, it don't contribute a great deal, perhaps, to the present question. All I wish you to understand is that I am prepared, as you yourself, to lend every hand to the business we have afore us, and, as I took the opportunity to say as much to of the officers not three quarters of an hour ago, to leave no stone unturned 
as may throw even a spark of light on this painful matter. In fact, Mr. Bowman did accompany us on our exploration, and though I am sure his genuine wish was to be helpful, I am afraid he didn't contribute to the serious side of it. He appeared to be under the impression that we were very likely to meet either Uncle Henry or the person responsible for his disappearance walking about the fields, and did a great deal of shading his eyes with his hand and calling our attention by pointing with his stick to distant cattle and labourers. He held several long conversations with old women whom we met, and was very strict and severe in his manner, but on each occasion returned to our party, saying, Well, I find she don't seem to have no connection with this sad affair. I think you might take it from me, sir, that there's little or no light to be looked at from that quarter, not without she's keeping something back intentional. We gained no appreciable result, as I told you at starting. The Bow Street men have left the town, whether for London or not, I'm not sure. This evening I had the company in the shape of a bagman, smartish fellow. He knew what was going forward, but though he has been on the roads for some days about here, he had nothing to tell of suspicious characters, tramps, wandering sailors or gypsies. He was very full of a capital Punch and Judy show he'd seen this same day at W, and asked if it had been here yet, and advised me by no means to miss it if it does come. The best Punch and the best Toby Dog, he said, he had ever come across. Toby Dogs, you know, are the last new things in the shows. I've only seen one myself, but before long all the men will have them. Now why, you will want to know, do I trouble to write all this to you? I'm obliged to do it, because it has something to do with another absurd trifle, as you will inevitably say, which in my present state of rather unquiet fancy, nothing more perhaps, I have to put down. It is a dream, sir, which I am going to record, and I must say it's one of the oddest I have had. Is there anything in it beyond what the bagman's talk and Uncle Henry's disappearance could have suggested? You, I repeat, shall judge. I am not in sufficiently cool and judicial frame to do so. It began with what I can only describe as a pulling aside of curtains, and I found myself seated in a place, I don't know whether indoors or out. There were people, only a few on either side of me, but I didn't recognise them, or indeed think much about them. They never spoke, but so far as I remember were all grave and pale-faced, and looked fixedly before them. Facing me, there was a Punch and Judy show, perhaps rather larger than the ordinary ones, painted with black figures on a reddish-yellow ground. Behind it, on each side, was only darkness, but in front there was a sufficiency of light. I was strung up to a high degree of expectations and listened every moment to hear the panpipes and the roo too too to it. Instead of that, there came suddenly an enormous, I can use no other word, an enormous single toll of a bell. I don't know from how far off, somewhere behind. The little curtain flew up, and the drama began. I believe someone once tried to rewrite Punch as a serious tragedy, but whoever he may have been, this performance would have suited him exactly. There was something satanic about the hero. He varied his methods of attack. For some of his victims he lay in wait. To see his horrible face, it was yellowish-white, I may remark, peering round the wings made me think of the vampire in Fuseli's foul sketch, to others he was polite and carnying, particularly to the unfortunate alien who can only say Shalabala, though what Punch said I never could catch. But with all of them I came to dread the moment of death, the crack of the stick on their skulls, which in the ordinary way delights me, had here a crushing sound, as if the bone was giving way. 
and the victims quivered and kicked as they lay. The baby, it sounds more ridiculous as I go on, the baby, I'm sure, was alive. Punch wrung its neck, and if the choke or squeak which it gave were not real, I know nothing of reality. The stage got perceptibly darker as each crime was consummated, and at last there was one murder which was done quite in the dark, so that I could see nothing of the victim, and took some time to effect. It was accompanied by hard breathing and horrid, muffled sounds, and after it Punch came and sat on the footboard and fanned himself and looked at his shoes, which were bloody, and hung his head on one side and sniggered in so deadly a fashion that I saw some of those beside me cover their faces, and I would gladly have done the same. But in the meantime the scene behind Punch was clearing and showed not the usual house front, but something more ambitious, a grove of trees and the gentle slope of a hill with a very natural, in fact I should say a real moon shining on it. Over this there rose slowly an object which I soon perceived to be a human figure with something peculiar about the head, what I was unable at first to see. It did not stand on its feet, but began creeping or dragging itself across the middle distance towards Punch, who still sat back to it, and by this time I may remark, though it didn't occur to me at the moment, that all pretense of this being a puppet show had vanished. Punch was still Punch, it's true, but like the others, was in some sense a live creature, and both moved themselves at their own will. When I next glanced at him, he was sitting in malignant reflection, but in another instant something seemed to attract his attention, and he first sat up sharply and then turned around and evidently caught sight of the person that was approaching him and was in fact now very near. Then indeed did he show unmistakable signs of terror. Catching up his stick, he rushed towards the wood, only just eluding the arm of his pursuer, which was suddenly flung out to intercept him. It was with a revulsion which I cannot easily express that I now saw more or less clearly what this pursuer was like. He was a sturdy figure clad in black, and, as I thought, wearing bands. His head was covered with a whitish bag. The chase, which now began, lasted I don't know how long, now among the trees, now along the slope of the field. Sometimes both figures disappeared wholly for a few seconds, and only uncertain sounds letting one know that they were still afoot. At length there came a moment when Punch, evidently exhausted, staggered in from the left and threw himself down among the trees. His pursuer was not long after him, and came looking uncertainly from side to side. Then, catching sight of the figure on the ground, he too threw himself down. His back was turned to the audience, with a swift motion twitched the covering from his head and thrust his face into that of Punch, Everything on the instant grew dark. There was one long, loud, shuddering scream, and I awoke to find myself looking straight into the face of, what in all the world do you think, but a large owl, which was seated on my windowsill immediately opposite my bedfoot, holding up its wings like two shrouded arms. I caught the fierce glance of its yellow eyes, and then it was gone, 
I heard the single enormous bell again, very likely, as you're saying to yourself, the church clock. But I do not think so. And then I was brought awake. All this, I may say, happened within the last half hour. There is no probability of my getting to sleep again, so I got up, put on my clothes enough to keep me warm, and I'm writing this rigmarole in the first hours of Christmas Day. Have I left out anything? Yes, there was no Toby Dog, and the names over the front of the Punch and Judy booth were Kidman and Gallop, which was certainly not what the bagman told me to look out for. By this time, I feel a little more as if I could sleep, so this shall be sealed and wafered. Letter 4 December the 26th, 1837 My dear Robert, all is over and the body has been found. I do not make excuses for not having sent off my news by last night's mail for the simple reason that I was incapable of putting pen to paper. The events that attended the discovery bewildered me so completely that I needed what I could get of a night's rest to enable me to face the situation at all. Now I can give you my journal of the day certainly the strangest Christmas day that I ever spent or am likely to spend. The first incident was not very serious. Mr. Bowman had, I think, been keeping Christmas Eve and was a little inclined to be captious, at least. He was not on foot very early. To judge from what I could hear, neither men or maids could do anything to please him. The latter were certainly reduced to tears, nor am I sure that Mr. Bowman succeeded in preserving a manly composure. At any rate, when I came downstairs, it was in a broken voice that he wished me the compliments of the season, and a little later, when he paid his visit of ceremony at breakfast, he was far from cheerful, even Byronic, I might almost say, in his outlook on life. I don't know, he said, if you think with me, sir, but every Christmas as comes round, the world seems a hollerer thing to me. Why, take an example now from what lays under my own eye. There's my servant, Eliza, been with me now for going on fifteen years. I thought I could have placed my confidence in Eliza, and yet this very morning, Christmas morning too, of all the blessed days of the year, with the bells of ringing and all and all like that, I say this very morning, had it not been for Providence watching over us all, that girl would have put, indeed I may go so far as to say, had put the cheese on your breakfast table. He saw I was about to speak and waved his hand at me. It's all very well for you to say yes, Mr. Bowman, but you took away the cheese and locked it up in the cupboard, which I did and I have the key here, or if not the actual key, one very much about the same size. That's true enough, sir. But what do you think is the effect of that action on me? Why, it's no exaggeration for me to say that the ground is cut from under my feet. And yet when I said as much to Eliza, not nasty, mind you, but just firm-like, what was my return? Oh, she says. Well, she says. There was no bones broke, I suppose. Well, sir, it hurt me. That's all I can say, hurt me. And I don't like to think of it now. There was an ominous pause here, in which I ventured to say something like, yes, very trying, and then asked what hour the church service was to be. Eleven o'clock, Mr. Bowman said with a heavy sigh. Ah, you won't have no such discourse from poor Mr. Lucas as what you should have done from our late rector. Him and me may have had our little differences, and did do, more's the pity. I could see that a powerful effort was needed to keep him off the vexed question of the cask of beer, but he made it. But I will say this that a better preacher, not yet one to stand faster by his rights, or what he considered to be his rights, however, that's not the question now, I, for one, never set under. Some might say, was he an eloquent man? And to that my answer would be, well, there you have a better right perhaps to speak of your own uncle than what I have. Others might ask, did he keep a hold of his congregation? And there again I should reply, that depends. 
But as I say, yes, Eliza, my girl, I'm coming. Eleven o'clock, sir, and you inquire for the King's Head pew. I believe Eliza had been very near the door, and I shall consider it in my veil. The next episode was church. I felt Mr. Lucas had a difficult task in doing justice to Christmas sentiments, and also to the feeling of disquiet and regret which, whatever Mr. Bowen might say, was clearly prevalent. I do not think he rose to the occasion. I was uncomfortable. The organ wolved, you know what I mean. The wind died twice in the Christmas hymn, and the tenor bell, I suppose owing to some negligence on the part of the ringers, kept sounding faintly about once in a minute during the sermon. The clerk sent up a man to see to it, but he seemed unable to do much. I was glad when it was over. There was an odd incident, too, before the service. I went in rather early and came upon two men carrying the parish beer back to its place under the tower. From what I overheard them saying, it appeared that it had been put out by mistake by someone who was not there. I also saw the clerk busy folding up a moth-eaten velvet pall, not a sight for Christmas Day. I dined soon after this, and then, feeling disinclined to go out, took my seat by the fire in the parlour with the last number of Pickwick, which I had been saving up for some days. I thought I could be sure of keeping awake over this, but I turned out as bad as our friend Smith. I suppose it was half-past two when I was roused by a piercing whistle and laughing and talking voices outside in the marketplace. It was a punch and judy. I had no doubt that one that my bagman had seen at W. I was half-delighted half not, the latter because my unpleasant dream came back to me so vividly. But anyhow, I determined to see it through, and I sent Eliza out with a crown piece to the performers, and the request that they would face my window if they could manage it. The show was a very smart new one. The names of the proprietors, I need hardly tell you, were Italian, Foresta and Calpigi. The Toby Dog was there, as I had been led to expect. All B turned out, but didn't obstruct my view, for I was at the large first-floor window not ten yards away. The play began on the stroke of a quarter to three by the church clock. Certainly it was very good, and I was soon relieved to find that the disgust my dream had given me for Punch's onslaughts on his ill-starred visitors was only transient. I laughed at the demise of the turncock, the foreigner, the beetle, and even the baby. The only drawback was the Toby dogs developing a tendency to howl in the wrong place, Something had occurred, I suppose, to upset him, and something considerable, for, I forget exactly at what point, he gave a most lamentable cry, leapt off the footboard, and shot away across the marketplace and down a side street. There was a stage wait, but only a brief one. I suppose the men decided that it was no good going after him, and that he was likely to turn up again at night. We went on. Punch dealt faithfully with Judy, and in fact with all comers, and then came the moment when the gallows was erected, and the great scene with Mr. Ketch was to be enacted. It was now that something happened, of which I can certainly not yet see the import fully. You have witnessed an execution and know what the criminal's head looks like with the cap on. If you like me, you never wish to think of it again, and I don't willingly remind you of it. It was just such a head as that that I, from my somewhat higher post, saw in the inside of the show-box, but at first the audience didn't see it. I expected it to emerge into their view, but instead of that, there slowly rose for a few seconds an uncovered face with an expression of terror upon it, of which I have never imagined the like. It seemed as if the man, whoever he was, was being forcibly lifted with his arms somehow pinioned or held back towards the little gibbet on the stage. 
I could just see the night-capped head behind him. Then there was a cry and a crash. The whole showbox fell over backwards. Kicking legs were seen among the ruins. And then two figures, as some said, I can only answer for one, were visible running at top speed across the square and disappearing in the lane which leads to the fields. Of course, everybody gave chase. I followed, but the pace was killing, and very few were in, literally at the death. It happened in a chalk pit. The man went over the edge quite blindly and broke his neck. They searched everywhere for the other, until it occurred to me to ask whether he had ever left the marketplace. At first everyone was sure that he had, but when we came to look, he was there, under the showbox, dead too. But in the chalk pit it was that poor Uncle Henry's body was found, with a sack over the head, the throat horribly mangled. It was a peaked corner of the sack sticking out of the soil that attracted attention. I cannot bring myself to write in greater detail. I forgot to say, the men's real names were Kidman and Gallop. I feel sure I have heard them, but no one here seems to know anything about them. I'm coming to you as soon as I can after the funeral. I must tell you when we meet what I think of it all. Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody so come back, don't Isn't that so? You tried to get into the locked drawer so? today, didn't you? you tried to How get do the dead come back, Mother? Didn't you? What's the secret of dead come So that was M.R. James for Christmas. You've got to have an M.R. James story at Christmas, really. That was the story of a disappearance and an appearance. So it's one of his few stories which is actually set at Christmas. You'll probably know that he was well known for reading his stories out at Christmas when he was at uh, Cambridge. But few of the stories are actually set over the festive period. This one was first published in June 1913 in a periodical called the Cambridge Review, and then it was collected in his anthology The Thin Ghost and others in 1919. So, as always with James, James lived in a very particular world um, of Cambridge and then Eton, and it has its own vocabulary, and I guess he was uh, part of that world is to be steeped in an England that no longer exists and possibly didn't exist for most people even then, but certainly for James and his friends. So bands are a kind of white necktie worn by a certain type of old-fashioned Anglican clergyman in those days. And I think it's to signify that his uncle Henry, W.R.'s uncle Henry, who is the, the letter writer, his uncle Henry was rather old school. A, a bagman... A bagman is a peddler or a commercial traveller or a travelling salesman wandering the streets. And I couldn't help but notice if the poor guy's out working, wandering the streets far from home on Christmas Eve, then he's going to be late getting home. And this leads us kind of to the question, what on earth happened? Because we're not really given a proper explanation of the, the story at all. And it seems to me... And I may, I always have the feeling with James's stories that I'm actually missing something. But uh, it seems to me that what happened was poor old Uncle Henry, who was straight-laced but very dutiful, a bit boring, possibly not the easy, well, he says he's not genial, doesn't he? Not the easiest guy to get along with, but he knows his duty and he's basically a good man. He goes to visit this poor family. He's called out just before Christmas and he leaves them some money and then he vanishes. 
So up until this point, it's 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 Midsummer Murders, really, which was a if you don't know, was a famous English detective series where it's set in rural England where everybody got murdered in these apparently peaceful villages. So old Uncle Henry goes missing and they drag the rivers and they go looking for him and they can't find him. And this is a bit of a mystery. And they presume he's been murdered. And then clue number one is when W.R. is in his hotel over Christmas and the bagman gets talking to him and he says, did you see any dubious characters on the streets? And those dubious characters are gypsies, tramps, and wandering sailors. Well, of course, this is set sort of in the 1830s, yeah. So it's still after the the Napoleonic Wars, and I wish my history was a bit sharper, but I think after the economic effort, there was a bit of a a crash, economic crash in those days, and a lot of uh, soldiers and sailors basically were left to their own devices to to walk the streets and and become hobos, you know, bums, tramps. So these are kind of... Your stock, if somebody's going to murder you in England in those days, it's going to be one of these lot. But then, of course, the bagman goes on about this most wonderful Punch and Judy show. So what is the Punch and Judy show for those people who don't know? Well, it is a very stylized type of puppet show. And it's descended from, I think, the, the Commedia dell'arte, the Italian marionettes tradition. And I think Punch, Mr. Punch, is um, Punchinella. Anyway, the story is quite gruesome. Punch is a, is a serial killer. Mr. Punch, and he's monstrous sadist, monster, monster. And he kills everybody, the baby, his wife, Judy, and eventually he's hung. So it's a very grim story. And it's it's traditionally for children. And there's a, a Toby dog. And they talk with a funny vo- voice with a little squeaker that you put in your throat. And I, at one point, f- quite fancied being a Punch and Judy man. But my then wife said to me that I would probably swallow the, the buzzer and have to go to the hospital all the time. So... But it never happened. So Punch and Judy, the Toby dog. So the Toby dog's in the Punch and Judy. It reminds me of one of my great favourites at this time of year is the Box of Delights by John Macefield, which was that and the Midnight Folk. Now, if you remember, the piece of music I played at the end of the last one was the Midnight Folk, based by, who knows, inspired by um, John Macefield's story. So these two books are fantastic. They're a bit weird themselves, but I loved them as a kid. And then in the 1980s, it was a, a very famous TV series of A Box of Delights. I'm digressing, of course. This is not about The Box of Delights. But there's a Punch and Judy man in it called Cole Hawkins, and he has a Toby dog. That is the connection. Okay, so there we are. So basically, it seems that the Punch and Judy men murdered, came across him, murdered him for his money. He had money on him because he left money with the old, you know, the uh, the poor people. So that that's set up. That's that. And then, of course, the job of a ghost in many traditional stories is to right wrongs beyond the grave when a murder has been i think of uh, shakespeare and banquo's ghost and stuff like that the job of a ghost hamlet's father is to point out a terrible wrong has been done and invite the living to make it right but of course it's not the living to make it right it appears that the punch and judy men have a visitation now i'm going to say something about some james drops things in to create an effect and this image of the hood over the man's head is these people hearing this story will have been familiar with executions. And this is what you did. You put the hood over the head before you hang the, hang the victim, the murderer, the criminal. So that would, have, that would have reminded them of that. But it looks like that the Punch and Judy men setting up their show were suddenly visited by some kind of presence. I mean, the Toby, Jog legs it, Toby, Toby, Jog, Toby dog legs it 
um, there's something going on. They run, one dies there and then, and the other, it is almost a hanging. He talks about a man being lifted with his arms pinioned behind him. So it is, it's an execution. It's an image of execution. And the running man, the running criminal, who we presume is the criminal, breaks his neck and reveals the, the body that wouldn't have been found otherwise. So that is a very traditional ghost thing to do in a ghost story. James, you, you mustn't say anything about James. It's one of those things you can't touch. But, you know, you talk about Chekhov. He says, you're going to use a gun in Act 3, put it in, make them see it in Act 1. Well, James drops things in for effect that do not actually lead anywhere in the plot. And it's almost like melodrama. These things are put in, as I say in the notes, in, in my Dungeons and Dragons days, we used to put things in not because they advanced the story, but because they created the atmosphere. They were props, you know. So there are portents and omens that occur in this story that do not appear to advance the narrative unless I'm really missing something. And this, of course, the Gothic novel did. The Gothic novel of the, you know, 18th century, 19th century was full of portents and omens. It was part of the thing. So James may be playing with this, but certainly the owl, that, that dread bird of the night, the Toby dog running off, the bell that rings that can't be fixed in, during the Christmas Day service, the, the organ going wrong or wolving. My spell checker didn't know what that was, neither did I, but I do now. Strange things like the, the beer being put out, you know, that's what you put a coffin on, on Christmas Day, and the pall again for coffins being taken out, and, and these are just shown and they're put away, you know. So they do not appear to advance the story. They seem to be merely there to make us go, ooh, you know. The other thing that's there is Mr. Bowman, the innkeeper. He, he's, he has some purpose in showing what a, an old curmudgeon Uncle Henry was, but generally he's just there as comic effect, really. And all the story about Eliza and the cheese and the key, is that supposed to be supernatural? Because I was a bit lost there. Somebody knows, tell me. James is just dropping these things in. I think the story is a cross between a murder mystery and a horrific dream sequence, and this is where the unsettlingness of the story comes. The dream is lurid and bizarre and surreal, and, you know, an old-fashioned ghost story, many other ghost story writers, particularly the traditional ones up to this point, they would tell a naturalistic story, a supernatural thing intruded in it, but the world was otherwise perfectly normal. But James has this surreal, these surreal interludes, and you think about the shirt, the flapping shirt, and the black figure in, uh, which these are two stories we've done, you know, uh, oh, oh, whistle and I'll come to you, and then in the mezzotint, the, the broken figure crawling with the white cross, these are just nightmare figures. And I think that's where he, he manages to get our normal world and just split it and put nightmare in. You know when in the middle of the night you've had a nightmare and it is so wrong and there's that uncanny feeling. Uncanny meaning, unheimlich as Freud called it. The normal world is strange and what we have taken for granted and drawn our security from is the rules, the fact that the world is the world and it behaves in a certain way. And what James does is he brings elements of the irrational and almost 
I say prefiguring, but you know, the surrealists and the Dadaists and people like that. And this is going to become an element in. I, I notice when I read a lot of modern horror stories that they are not naturalistic, that they are surreal, that they delve into the unconscious. And of course, the Freudian Jung and the unconscious becomes a big deal in stories later on. But a lot of modern horror is not naturalistic. And whereas James's story is broadly, the, the setting is, he, the dream is definitely unnerving because it is it undermines our security of living in a predictable world and opens us to the possibilities that something strange and and uncanny can reach in at any time this to me is his genius really not particularly his plotting not his characterization not his language but just this ability to put the weird in in a way that really gets under your skin he has his successes i always think of you know we do have this tradition of the weird think of robert aikman and we read the bruno schultz you know who's polish but that that is about that's the surrealist coming in you know the the influence of the irrational through the unconscious and that of course has a big connection with romanticism but we haven't got time to go through that. Anyway, ultimately, the story's okay. I like it. I like the English setting. The the, the village that's done nicely. I, I want to be there, you know. And the weird, but the weirdness is weird. So yeah, he he deserves his place because he is really scary, without being gory. Anyway, so that's that. That's your that's your thing for Christmas. The thoughts of my my twisted mind. I'm not saying I'm right. I'm no expert. I don't have a PhD in um, ghost stories, although it would be rather nice to get one if I had the time and leisure, which I don't. So I've been, my uh, Christmas ghost stories, which uh, who are far more naturalistic, they're a lot simpler than James's and Schmaltzier, to be honest, but they're reviewing very well. Uh, so, you know, get that. More ghost stories by Tony Walker. The audiobook should be out. General Begging Bowl. Oh, buy me a coffee. There we go. Buy me a coffee. K-O-F-I. I think it's .com. www.ko.fi.com forward slash Tony Walker. You can get some free audiobooks there as well if you if you call by. Music at the end is by Dvoinik, and I put some links on because you can go and buy his stuff now. He's giving all this to me for free, all the way from Australia, Michael Romeo, and um, this this is our chance to support him, okay? So if you like the ominous drones at the end of this, crack on. The beginning is Hartwood Institute, as always, my mate Jonathan. I hope you are having a very nice Christmas. And the only weirdness that comes in is through the means of these stories or any films you want to watch. I'm looking forward to watching a ghost story for Christmas on BBC, and if there isn't a current one this year, I'll watch some of the old ones. (laughs) 